You are listening to episode 37 of The Lewis and Kyle Show with Eric Jorgensen. Over the last few years, I've really shifted my belief from like, hey, you need to learn a thing before you do it to like, go start doing it and you will be forced to learn it. And you will learn much better when you are in the context of trying to solve a specific problem than you will, you know, trying to chart out your whole path and learn your way around every obstacle before you even get started. Like five years ago, I would have read about how to publish a book. And now I just have published a book, but it's not because I read about it five years ago. I don't even remember what I read five years ago. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Lewis and I are students at the University of Alabama, and we are on a journey to deconstruct success stories of interesting entrepreneurs, investors, and people making a big impact on their world. We're sharing what we learn in public from high-impact conversations with high-impact people. Today, we share with you our interview with Eric Jorgensen, author of the recently released Navalmanac, a collection of aggregated wisdom from the philosopher king of Silicon Valley, Naval Ravikant. Lewis, can you please just tell us a little bit more about Eric? Yes, so Eric Jorgensen is a product strategist at Zarly and also contributed to the blog Evergreen on Medium, which has educated and entertains more than 1 million readers about all topics related to business since 2014. And most recently, like you said, he published The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, A Guide to Wealth and Happiness. In this conversation, we unpack some of the most important ideas from the book, most notably ethical wealth creation, and also applying many of the concepts to problems related to growing this podcast that Kyle and I are considering about. What does it mean to set and maintain a personal hourly rate? What does it mean to productize yourself? Uh, and we also ask Eric about the inspiration for this book, You know, some of the other books he's read that inspired him to put this blog together and put this wisdom in one place. Uh, we talk about some other inspiring thinkers that he thinks are on the come up as well. And at the end, we have a fun discussion about sandwiches. It was a really fun conversation. I'm really glad that Eric came on with us and I think y'all are gonna enjoy listening to it. So with that, I'm just gonna cut right to it. Eric, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We're super excited to chat with you today. Happy to be here. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, so for those in the audience who aren't familiar with you and your work before we dive all the way into, you know, Naval, uh, can you briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Eric Jorgensen. Um, I've been kind of in the startup tech world for the last 10 years or so, um, mostly working at Zarly. Um, on this, my kind of side projects have been a blog called Evergreen and a uh, recent book called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Awesome. Well, let's, let's dive right into Naval then. Uh, can, now can you do a quick intro for him? Who's Naval uh, and when did you first encounter his work? Yeah, Naval is, is kind, of a, um, kind of an icon in the Valley. Uh, and and I, that's where I kind of first got introduced to him, um, was like coming out of a startup weekend in Michigan when I was in college. Um, I kind of met somebody who was actually in the Valley world for the first time. And they were like, hey, go read all of Venture Hacks and everything Naval has written and go read everything Paul Graham has written. Um, and I was like, all right, like these are the two kind of like lighthouses of the Valley. So that was kind of how I got introduced. Um, and I've started, I mean, I've been following Naval since then, you know, I listened to talks and followed him on Twitter and watched as he kind of built AngelList and um, added businesses onto that. And it, it's been really kind of cool to see not just him share more of his philosophy, but also kind of be able to apply that to, dissecting how he has built what he's built. Um, and so when you get kind of a big sample size of seeing someone's career over that length of time and seeing the philosophy get evolved as the businesses evolve, it, it's pretty cool and instructive, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you could write a similar, uh, a similar almanac on Paul Graham as well. You know, he's so influential in that world, but 
What books inspired you to write uh, the Navalmanac specifically? You know, I know there's Seeking Wisdom and Poor Charlie's Almanac, but were there any other than his tweets? Was there anything else that that kind of spurred you? Yeah, there was a few. Um, like the moment happened when I listened to his podcast with Shane Parrish, um, which was really, really incredible. And I think one of not only Shane's best podcasts, but Naval's best podcasts. And it's kind of perennially some of the most downloaded um, and because it's just so dense with wisdom across a bunch of different areas. Um, so that was really the catalyst for the book. But as I kind of got close to publishing it, I was like looking back at like, how did this happen? You know, um, the kind of Steve Jobs advice of like, it only makes sense looking back in the rearview mirror, like you can't connect the dots going forward. Um, and so I thought about some of the most high impact books on me have been Poor Charlie's Almanac, Seeking Wisdom, um, The Letters of Warren Buffett that, that Max Olson compiled. And there's a lot of books, especially it seems like around uh, Munger and Buffett, that are actually compilations and, and someone has taken, you know, these existing raw materials and edited them into something new. Like that is Peter Bevelin's whole deal. You know, he's publishing books based on Sherlock Holmes and on Buffett and on Munger and on Darwin. Um, and, and they're incredible books. I mean, it's definitely like a niche uh, for nerds um, over there, but it is like, has been impactful for me. And so th this kind of like subgenre of like curated collections, um, existed to me in a way that it, it may not have for people who haven't stumbled kind of into that world. And then the final kind of like keystone in that, I guess, was reading principles. Um, so Ray Dalio's book that was kind of the capstone of his career as he's turning to like more philanthropy and um, sharing his wisdom. He's like, Hey, here's all the stuff that I've learned over my career. Here's how I ran my business. Here's how I made my decisions. And one of the things he says in that book is like, I wish other people had written their version of this book so that I could learn like in a transparent way when their career is closer to over, like, how did you do it? Why, what did you believe? You know, what, what were your um, kind of guiding principles? And I started, you know, that got my wheels turning on like who else I wish had written principles um, and of all was certainly on my list. And it, once I realized all the raw material was out there because of how prolific he is on Twitter and podcasts and things like that, I was like, well, maybe this is like a thing. Um, and so that was kind of where the, the seed of the idea came from. That's, that's really interesting about, uh, how there's not that many books like Ray Dalio, how not that many people take the time to at their end of their career, once they've reached that point of success, just like, let me explain all of it. So it's are you know, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett so incredibly popular because they're the absolute best or because, you know, they're one of the few people that have actually taken the time to stop and reflect and uh, distill everything into a clear, clear thought. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, the category of memoir is pretty well, like is pretty filled out and a lot of people write memoirs you know like shoe dog was an amazing business Absolutely. memoir and maverick and like i've learned a lot from those um but principles i think went really pretty far into much farther into structured decision making and and beliefs and pr principles obviously than you know a lot of the memoirs that are just kind of like here's the story here's what happened um that show you the decision points but not really how someone's like decision making frameworks evolved and how they were very deliberate about what they did. And, and um, it may just be that not many people were as deliberate about cataloging their decision-making process and things like that. Um, but it is definitely a, a, you know, it's a shifting genre and something that like, I'm very interested in continuing to see get curated and built out. And, um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from Naval and from Ray Dalio and from Buffett and Munger. And it, it is, um, it's exciting to see that this stuff can get created without, cause it's a ton of work without, you know, the whole team and a few years of effort that like I'm sure Ray Dalio had to put into building principles and just not everyone's going to take the time to do that. You know, 
So one thing that I've, that I've thought about recently is like the um, value of advice to people. And like, do you think that if Naval had the Naval Manac, that he would be Naval? You know what I mean? Like these people are, are writing their their advice to, to people, but they didn't have that. And, and would they be where they're at if they were given the same advice? Does that make sense to you? I, I, yeah, I think so. Um, and I think the word advice is maybe loaded in that mm -hmm. observation. Um, I, I don't think Naval would call all of this advice. I think he would say like, here are the principles that I distilled that worked for me that I'm sharing. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you should do them. I'm not saying you should follow, you know, what I did. And he would never say that. Um, you know, he, in fact, he says directly the opposite. If you're trying to mm -hmm. be someone else, you've already lost, you know, you, you will never succeed at being someone else. Um, but there are things that tend to be patterns that work. And there are things that are um, principles that once you observe can help you create your own success, right? Um, so an idea like build or buy equity in a business, like, is that advice or is that a principle, um, which is a little like maybe it's semantics. Um, but I think there's something interesting there. And I think there's something interesting about, um, where the right level of abstraction is to say, mm. this is something that does apply, even if, you know, this applies if you were born with all the advantages and it applies if you were born without any advantages, you still want to find a place of leverage. You still want to take personal accountability. That's not advice, maybe so much as like as a one-to-one -one situation specific, hey, you should do this so much as it is like, hey, here's how the world works in a way that you may not have already understood. And understanding that may help you be more successful. I think that's, that's really valuable. And I think even Naval, he kind of talks about, I mean, if you put that timeline of Naval at the beginning of the book, where he, and you have it in the appendix at the end, I mean, he kind of outlined these principles, what, in like 2007, and then chose to follow them. So in a way, you know, he did have them 10 years ago, and then followed them. And then only recently, you know, became the, the philosopher king, or whatever you want to call him, only recently decided to say, I'm going to share the operating system I've used for myself, because it's battle tested. Uh, but let's actually dive in now into the book itself, and some of Naval's key ideas before we keep, you know, referencing them, because we've all kind of dove in a little deep uh, but I want to start with kind of the same chronology used in the book about the how to get rich without getting lucky part of things. Uh, so could you quickly explain Naval's idea of ethical wealth creation and kind of the, the difference between that and villainizing wealth? Yeah, there's a kind of um, a foundational idea here that some people um, get stopped on their journey to wealth before they really even get started because they don't believe that it's possible to create wealth ethically. They believe that like in the history of um, it, it's, it is hard to articulate the counter argument because it's quite obviously flawed to me, but they basically believe that all wealth transfer is wealth taken. And so that is to kind of omit all of the technological innovations that have taken place, but they basically believe that anything, any wealthy person has like taken from someone else, not created wealth generally and captured some percentage of that. Um, and so you have to really believe that the pie is growing all the time. And at any time you create, you know, a profitable business that is exchanging with people on a voluntary basis, you're not only creating profit for yourself, offering something new, a new solution, 
but also that person is better off for having purchased your solution or they wouldn't have done it. So not only is there profit captured by the business, but there's consumer surplus, which is what we call the, the kind of the gap between what the consumer paid and the benefit that they're getting. And that has to exist really for um, the consumer to want to transact. You know, that's, it's a kind of an economic principle there, but um, people without that worldview tend to villainize wealth and tend to believe that, if they were to become wealthy, it would be because they did something immoral or did something evil, or if they are earning a profit that um, they're taking it from someone. And that's not how I see the world, certainly not how Naval sees the world. I don't think it is the correct worldview, but it certainly is not one. Uh, it, it would be too shaky of a foundation. And I think you would, anytime you were about to earn money, you would kind of come into this conflict where you thought you were doing something unethical and you wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and, and I think the, maybe the most obvious example um, that, that people like to bring up in this case is like, what about JK Rowling? You know, it's, it, it's a little bit easier to villainize billionaires in commerce, but it's much harder to say like the world, like that JK Rowling stole something by creating a, a book that everyone the wanted universe. and paid for. And, and, and yeah, just, you know, creatively came up with this thing that so many people were excited to participate in. Um, who is worse off because Harry Potter exists? Like I, I, I know of no people. Um, so it, it, that is like a mental test for like, she created something so valuable that a ton of people rewarded her for that and became better off as a result of it. Um, so it's really important to kind of, if you have that within you to kind of reconcile that and find your way out of it, if you aspire to be wealthy and in line with your principles at the same time. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think, you know, kind of one of my big personal pet peeves, not to be, you know, come at, at the defense of Jeff Bezos because everyone loves to attack him, but I kind of do like to come at his defense because, you know, I'm continually fascinated at the number of things in this world that are awesome that only exist because of Jeff Bezos. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm perfectly content with him having this astronomical amount of wealth when I just think about your book, right? And like Amazon Kindle and just the, the amount of different forms of knowledge and value he's democratized, I think justifies all of the wealth he's aggregated, you know, whether or not he deserves to keep the percentage of it that he's kept is sort of a secondary question. But the initial question of there is no doubt that all of these things, you know, authors like you and authors like uh, Lee LeFever, who we had on in the last episode we published, were able to distribute their books with, you know, they, it basically created what Naval talks about permissionless leverage, like mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos created a humongous, like immeasurably large way of getting permissionless leverage because of self publishing. And that's just one of like all of Amazon, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, this morning I checked a dashboard and like 200 people had purchased a book through Amazon. Amazon was printing that book, shipping that book to them and like sending me the money. I didn't even do a thing, right? Like- You just woke up. <laughs> I just woke up, it was, it's incredible. Um, and there's a million, you know, little ways that that's happening. AWS is supporting the whole internet. Amazon's now delivering packages. Like this is, um, Bezos is, is commonly, you know, frequently attacked. And yeah, it, it's, um, there's a, it's a, I find it to be a little bit of a tiresome argument because it's, you're coming at such a different worldview that like you, everybody's just talking past each other. Um, and I don't, I don't know where, what the right level to unpack is before you can kind of actually like see eye to eye and start understanding, um, and, and actually discussing the disagreement, you know, um, it's just so far back that it's um it's difficult to find yeah one thing that's hard for me to see is like what specific knowledge did jeff bezos create in himself to be able to produce such massive results in the world so I, my question I, is I like, almost have an answer for you there 
not to jump in. We'll go for I, it, Lewis. What's up? I'm just feeling inspired about Jeff Bezos today. <laughs> I read the entire book, so I'm like deep and I like read it so fast. Uh, so my brain is like trying to intersect all the ideas and connect them all at once. But I mean, there's so many unique insights that Jeff Bezos had to like, I mean, if we're talking like early Amazon, just first of all, he had the, the skill set of, you know, building things and being a businessman and being very smart. And then this recognition of, uh, I don't know if judgment counts as a form of specific knowledge, kind of reconciling all the terms, but you know, he recognized that books being the, the most uh, vast, right? The largest number of things in a similar category is books. And then recognizing the trend spotting of like the internet matters, all new wealth is gonna be created because of the internet and being able to combine those and execute on that, I feel like was his specific knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I just felt like I was just feeling inspired. It's kind of trying to tie in the before and the after to get uh, kind of a definition of specific knowledge in order to lead into the next question, which is what can we ask ourselves to be able to develop our sense of, of what our specific knowledge of specific knowledge area needs to be? Yeah, I don't, I don't think um, I don't think we need to have a specific like it, it is it is hard to create that category before you understand yourself. And so it doesn't start with like, what does the world need? It starts with what do you have and what are you interested in? Um, so the, the questions I think um, are, are like totally the right place to start. And so the questions that you would ask yourself or, or really ask people around you, like, I think that is almost a short because self-examination is much harder than um, it's easy. It's harder to see yourself sometimes and see the patterns that you lose sight of. So um some of the people that I have kind of worked with already on this found success in finding their specific knowledge by talking to parents or people who were around them, siblings, who people who were around them when they were younger and say, like, what were the things that you did when you had free time that you found hours and hours just like you lost yourself in? Um, that's a, that's a kind of an early one to see, like, what were your emerging skills? What were your emerging interests? Um, I, I've always been, you know, much more words than numbers. Um or, or like mechanically inclined particularly. So like when I was 12, I was trying to like sit down and write novels about like elves and they were terrible, but like I was at least experimenting with words, right? Um, on the kind of like, as you get closer to today, you might look at um, maybe in the workplace, like what are the things that you get asked for? Do you get asked to um, kind of proofread and edit stuff? Do you get asked to create first drafts? Do you get asked for, to be present in meetings? Do you get asked to get like, go with someone to meet with a client? Um, do you get asked to smooth things over when someone's angry? Do you get asked um, to step aside? Like what, where, um, what are the things that people recognize in you that when they need your help, they come to you for? Um, that's a pretty common like way to discover things. Um, but it's not just what you're good at. It's also what you're interested in and what you enjoy doing. Um, so the stuff that you do on nights, the stuff that you do on weekends, the people that you choose to hang out with, what you choose to talk to them about, um, can all kind of be clues to help you unpack that, that specific knowledge. Can you contextualize that in terms of obsession, kind of the way Naval talks about the importance of how you will lose if that's not the case? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we are increasingly in kind of a winner take all world. And the people who, you know, this is where you get into the, like the role of hard work, like hard work is important. And if you are trying to compete with someone directly, like hard work matters a lot. Um, And so if you are doing something that you find deeply fulfilling and are already obsessed with, to use your word, like you are going to 
naturally like win at that thing when someone else feels like um, when it's hard for them to do each incremental task because they're using up, you know, their, their willpower store to get through it. And somebody else is just like happily chugging along. Cause like, that's what they love to do. And they would choose to do it. Um, it, it a story that not many people know is like how Craigslist got started. And, and really like part of the reason that it won the early internet before there was even like a, a race for the internet is just that like Craig Newmark fucking loved responding to customer support requests. And like, that's how he built that whole thing. Like it was, it was a, you know, it was a basic website at a time when the web was very basic. And so like the fast load speed was, it was a big advantage and it was very simple. So people who weren't used to like fancy graphics and stuff could, could use it. But also Craig Newmark would happily reply to 500 customers every single day and just help them find the thing or help them put through it. And he's not like a super type a aggressive tech entrepreneur guy. He wasn't trying to build a huge, huge, huge business. He just really wanted to like help people on the internet and found fulfillment doing this kind of like rote task and was like interpersonal, but introverted. So like doing it through email really worked for him. Um, and it just like reps and reps and reps and reps of things that helped build that business. And that was a thing that would have been monumentally difficult for anybody else to do. They probably would have tried to find a way around it instead of just enjoyed the task mm -hmm. and gotten through it and, and, seen the prize that comes on the other side. Yeah. And then, you know, he just on the back end had network effects, all those things like actually building the engine on the exponential scale kind of behind the scenes. Yeah. And I don't think that was, um, you know, I think he probably started Craigslist before it was clear what it would become and mm -hmm. didn't necessarily know, you know, the, I don't think the term network effects existed or certainly was like as well understood as it is today when he started it. Um, but you know, it's an incredible business. I mean, it's one of the highest revenue per employee businesses ever. Um, and it's still kind of maintaining its moat despite Facebook marketplace and eBay and all of this other stuff that has popped up. And it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable thing. It really is. It's crazy to go on there and, and look at Craigslist and be like, this does not seem like it should exist today and, and be this big of a thing. But yeah. You've written a lot on, on your Medium blog and on Evergreen uh, about network effects. But one contradiction that I kind of noticed is that like in Naval's How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky thread, he talks about you, you shouldn't study business, like not in school. You shouldn't read business magazines, but you write about business concepts on Evergreen. So how do you think about, about that? Um, yeah, I wish I'd had this book when I was 17 because I would have chosen a different major um, for one. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting, I'm going to maybe like try to cop out through the like thread the needle here. But I think that there's a difference between um, studying like the, he, he says there is no skill called business. Mm -hmm. and, and, I th and I think that that's right. Um, I think that there are many kind of micro skills within business that you can really excel at and that are useful pieces of it. Right. So like you can become really, really proficient at accounting and like that will help you speak the language of a business. Um, you can become really quite good at sales. You can become really good at building a team. You can become really good at, you know, growth marketing and all of those things are maybe those are more specific skills um, that all help you build a business, but they are not, um, I, I, I always interpret it to say, like, if you just study business, that doesn't mean that you can build one. 
necessarily. Mm -hmm. And you, and the, the lessons of Silicon Valley are usually that people who are really obsessed with a specific topic or a specific technology end up building great businesses because of their obsession with that business or that technology. Right. So like Brian Armstrong, maybe like obsessed with cryptocurrency and studied it and was an early adopter of it and tried all of these new things. And like, because of that, saw the opportunity for Coinbase and started building Coinbase, but he didn't start Coinbase because he had the greatest business mind in the world. Um, counter argument to that would be like Warren Buffett, right? Like Warren Buffett, maybe more than anybody else has the skill of business, but he has the skill of accounting, analyzing, like valuation. And so it's a question of like how much you subdivide those. Um, the thing that I took from Naval and like have learned it later in life, certainly than I maybe could have, but would like, you don't study business as a whole. You try to like niche down and find the, the, the application of business. Um, and studying businesses has always been interesting to me and like looking across all of those things. But I, for a long time, made the mistake of thinking that if I just studied across all of those things, it would make me better at starting one or would lead me to it. And I don't think that that is true anymore. And I don't think um, I, I'm over the last few years, I've really shifted my belief from like, hey, you need to learn a thing before you do it to like, go start doing it and you will be forced to learn it. Um, and you will learn much better when you are in the context of trying to solve a specific problem than you will, you know, trying to chart out your whole path and learn your way around every obstacle before you even get started. You know, like five years ago, I would have read about how to publish a book. And now I just have published a book, but it's not because I read about it five years ago. I don't even remember what I read five years ago. Mm -hmm. That All that was, was an indication to me that like, maybe I was interested in doing that in the future, but that knowledge was gone. It, like there was no way to apply it in that moment. It was completely irrelevant. And five years later, I did something totally different, but I learned my way over and through those obstacles as they came up because I was committed to finishing this project. Um, and so that is like, um, that is how I see that quote now. It is not like, don't study business because you need to know all of those things before you get started, but like study a thing that will lead you to start a business and then the rest will kind of fall into place around you. Yeah, I think that really weaves in well with Naval's idea of just studying the fundamentals. You know, if you have a solid base, if you have a steel foundation, then you can do whatever with it. So if you have, you know, it's useful definitely to get your basic business literacy, right? Understand yeah. accounting and financial statements, understand the buzzwords in marketing, finance, whatever else. So at least you can form the concepts together in your head. And I think a book that does a really great job of that is like the personal MBA is okay. Now you have the entire glossary of business terms and then you can apply a more just-in-time based learning as you realize I need to learn X aspect of business. And also it's kind of big on, you know, learnable versus teachable skills, where if you're learning business management in school, you're going to learn a lot of theory about business management. Uh, whereas if you're learning accounting in school, you're actually going to be prepared to be an accountant. Whereas uh, management's more learnable where you actually have to be managing people. Uh, so I think that's, there's a lot of, I, I, I love, I get so into all these topics. So that, just loving this conversation. Uh, but one thing I really personally want to ask you about that I've struggled a lot with, even right before this call, is a personal hourly rate. Uh, that's something of all, one of the most actionable, I think, like the few things that you come away from this book, like with a to-do list in hand, like, okay, I should, this is a clear action item. And it's one I've really struggled with, uh, something like outsourcing podcasting editing, right? I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I found one that will do it for you know $40 an episode. Uh, and a $20 hourly rate is certainly not aggressive but I'm also not ready to just pony up and all of a sudden, you know, increase my monthly burn rate by 160 bucks. Uh, so how do you reconcile with setting and staying accountable to an ambitious number that you don't quite earn yet? Uh, and how does this not 
how does this interact with Naval's idea of avoiding lifestyle grief as well? Yeah, I think that's um, it's a very interesting question and and a kind of a common one because um, it's a very easy mental exercise to be like, oh yeah, totally. Um, but if you go try to do it, like there's obvious roadblocks. And so the the exercise that I would maybe walk you through is like if you spent that 160 tomorrow to get that podcast editing time back. So you've got eight more hours, but you've got $160 more out the door every month. Like what would you do with those eight hours? I would focus on marketing. So like creative marketing strategies for the podcast. So I've been reading traction, you know, by Gabriel, I gotta, I gotta cheat. Yeah. Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Mayers. Uh, And I think, you know, spending two hours, whether it's reaching out to bloggers who write listicles about podcasts and trying to get features in those categories or creating more content, you know, instead of editing just the basic podcast, making more snippet content or writing, I don't know, just something that's more high level cognitive and strategic. So what would the result of you spending eight hours on increased marketing effort be? Assuming Kyle and I get a bottom of funnel in place, hopefully revenue. Okay. Like would that happen sooner if you were able to dedicate that time to it? Absolutely. Okay. And and what's the blocker and what's the blocker to revenue? Audience. Audience. Well, you know, all, all the three pieces of the, the kind of digital marketing ecosystem, a large amount of traffic and then a bottom end offer. Uh, we don't have a bottom end offer yet. We don't, we're not selling anything at this point uh, unless basically we need an audience to drive all of those things. It's kind of the critical next bottleneck to have a substantial yeah. audience size. So you are currently not working on the bottleneck because you're doing your own podcast editing for $160 a month. But if you paid the $160 a month, you'd be able to spend the time on the audience and the audience growth would determine the revenue and the revenue would probably be greater than $160 a month. And it might take two to six months for that investment to pay back. But a six month investment payback period is insanely good and a no brainer if you look at it that way, instead of I'm spending $160 and never getting it back. And so I think the other piece of that is, is looking at the whole channel of like what you would do to get that time back. Um, the other maybe uh, thing that makes that more approachable is that you're not making that a, de- a permanent decision, you know? So it, it's hard to think of $160 a month forever as like that, that's just an intimidating thing. But if you say, I'm going to do this for three months or even one, like I'm not going to yeah. commit now it's a fixed amount of money that you're spending, not, a permanent change in how in that money, like going out the door. Um, so I, I think like maybe put a stop gap on that and say, we're going to do it for one month. We're going to do it for three months. And we're going to see if that investment justifies itself. Um, because you do have to use the time at a higher leverage way. Like you can't just tell yourself that your time is worth a hundred dollars an hour and then do jack shit with that time. Unless you've already like got the leverage in place that that is paying you back for it. Um, but, but currently, I think, you know, from everything I've heard from you guys and seen so far, like that time would be immediately better invested. And that would help you kind of start that flywheel of increased audience, increased productization, increased revenue. But all you're doing every month is delaying that. And when you look at the fact that you're delaying starting to build revenue every month, would you pay $160 to start that clock and that process sooner? Like, probably um, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot of value in this. I think, you know, you guys are doing an amazing podcast, doing an amazing job. You have great guests. Like the sooner you can start those processes that are going to build leverage and going to pay back and going to compound. So like, not only is it costing you the, the 160 bucks a month, mm-hmm. 
back to of your own time, but you also you were yeah. also yeah, you're also losing the time of compounding each each month that you don't make that decision and start that investment. Yeah, and I think contextualizing it as an experiment is kind of something that Lewis and I have tried to do with the podcast up until this point. Like we started and we were like, okay, we want to put out 25 episodes, then we'll re- reevaluate like sure. whether or not this is valuable, whether or not it was a good experience. So I think deciding uh, on, on that stopgap for a month or, or two months where we put the money up, up front and think that money's gone, now what are we going to do is, is the right way to move forward on that for sure. Yeah. And, and there's, there's probably smaller places to start with applying the leverage and buying back your time. If, if that's like, if that one is too big of a leap, um, you mm-hmm. know, maybe there's a SaaS tool that's 10 bucks a month that'll save you a half an hour. And like, that's worth it. And maybe there's another, maybe there's an automation that if you spent two hours setting up, that'll save you an hour a week. And so there's, there's things like that, that are maybe easier to chip away at um, that you can kind of level up your way into the editing one. If that one still feels like big and scary and, and like, um, risky, I guess. The way that you responded to his question, it felt like it was very informed by Naval, like in a way. And, you know, I've heard you talk before about how this has changed your brain and, and made you think different just because you've, you've distilled a, th- a million words of information from this guy. And, you know, that affects you. So like, uh, my question is, what daily habits or, or what about you has changed to the process of putting this book together? Yeah, it's, it's hard to pin it all down. Um, having spent like three years kind of stewing mm. in this material, you know, I, I'm sure that I have adopted plenty of things as my own that I should be attributing to Naval. Mm-hmm. And um, I could probably quote him a very annoying number of times each month. <laughs> um, but we, we are all like kind of standing on the shoulders of layers of giants that have come before us. And, you know, there's um, one of my favorite sections in the book is Naval's recommended reading. And so if you go read some of the things that he has recommended, you can see where a lot of his ideas come from and the, the you know, the, the giants that he stands on. Um, and so we're all kind of synthesizing ideas. You know, I went through a phase of doing this with Munger kind of earlier in life and Benjamin Franklin based on his recommendation and now Naval on top of that. And so, you know, we're all just kind of, um, we are building ourselves based on who we choose to emulate and whose ideas we choose to let in. And the thing that I liked about spending the last few years kind of studying Naval's ideas is, is a mix of things that are important to me at the time. So, um, I have been in chapters of like extreme ambition and hard work and um, just really, really dedicated to building wealth and, and found myself in a very unhappy place. You know, I was just not living a balanced life, wasn't super health focused. And um, one of the things that attracted me to Naval was like, he's now kind of um, he's looking at life as a holistic, in a holistic way and saying, you know, here are very straightforward principles to building wealth, but also here are the trade-offs that come with it. And here are complementary ideas about your health and your happiness and how it all fits together. And that kind of met me where I was in life at the moment. Um, and, and maybe kind of pulled me into philosophy a little bit earlier in life than is like the natural pattern for people, um, that I'm, that I'm kind of very grateful for. And so I've got, I've got habits, um, from that section and a little bit of a different perspective, um, on how the world works and how wealth is built and how companies are built and, and what makes people happy and what doesn't. And, um, you know, building healthy habits, like all of those things are, some of them were opinions that I had that were reinforced. Um, and some of them I kind of see like 
new lenses almost. Um, you know, leverage in particular is like a new lens. Accountability is, is maybe an improved understanding of the relationship between uh, risk and reward. So there's some of those that are just kind of like new layers of understanding. Some feel kind of like new lenses on the world. Um, and some just kind of feel like new habits, you know, new, um, new ideas, new uh, monikers, new mantras that, that just kind of sit with me or bubble up, you know, as I have the little like Naval on my shoulder reminding me of things. That's a huge network of mental hooks, kind of what Naval says the purpose of his writing is, right? Uh, and I think I really liked how you, something that really clicked for me just at the beginning of your explanation there was about that Naval's recommended reading and how, you know, we kind of have, at least in my head, contextualized him as this very powerful intellectual figure. <laughs> and just when you're like, well, all Naval is, is just the accumulation of, you know, his experience and this large, uh, very large and very like, you know, impressive glossary of books that he's read Ben Franklin and I um, can't remember the other ones off the top uh, Richard so much Feynman like a ton of Feynman and it's just Naval's just the accumulation of all of that and it's you know for clarity's sake and for making it good writing you don't say uh, in the footnotes this is the original book that this idea came from and this came from this right. and this came from this uh, and Naval really does an amazing job of presenting himself as you know this or not necessarily intentionally just as this original philosopher and that kind of makes him intimidating as a figure uh, but that totally that recommended reading that could almost be an interesting way to experience the book. If you put that at the beginning, just like read this mm. and you won't be as intimidated by him. And then just, this is what one man did with all of these ideas. Uh, and obviously yeah. that can go forever, forever down to the very beginning of, of thought and, you know, modern thinking, but. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's easier to see. Uh, <laughs> got, got lost in the bibliography. No, yeah. Turtles all the way down. Like exactly. we are, we are all. It, it's easier to see it in other people than in ourselves, I think. But like when we choose our inputs, however deliberately we do it, we are choosing who we become, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so to see, to see someone else say like, Hey, here are all my most influential books. And here's a book of all my ideas is it, it is much clearer than we will ever have a, a view of ourselves as a system of inputs and outputs. Right. But like Naval's favorite books are all sci-fi, nonfiction, science, and philosophy. And so here's this guy who's like happy, immersed in the technology world and kind of like first principles science influence, but not a scientist. So applied scientists int interested in futurism also kind of philosophically present and happy. And like those inputs determine those outputs. And of course that like started that kind of co-evolutionary cycle started with his interests. That's what drove him to choose what to read. Um, but that became who he is. And so that like, process just happens over and over and over again and we are all going through it and so whether you know whatever the fit next thing is we choose to pick up is going to determine the next thing that we choose to pick up it's going to determine the next thing we choose to pick up and that over mm -hmm. time is just going to like pile up into who we become and each of one of those indiv individual decisions might be might be very intentional it might be very mindless um but you know i ended up writing this book because i picked up Poor Charlie's Almanac and Seeking Wisdom mm -hmm. and the Letters of Warren Buffett and Principles. And I, to what extent, like some of those decisions led into each other. Now I'm creating this book and now this book is going to influence and certainly impact like whatever I do to create next in my life. And each one of those decisions is like not a huge monumental, like pro con list staring out the window with a glass of scotch life decision, but it was like, something that determined kind of the, how the path of my life, you know, evolved and meandered. Uh, and, and we're all kind of making those decisions constantly. And I mean, not to get 
too meta, but you can really <laughs> ex- extrapolate that out so far to where like, if for the books thing, it's like, if you had turned, if your mom had turned right instead of left that day, you walk into the house a little bit different, you, you miss that book. Or, you know, mm-hmm. my grandparents, like the butterfly effect in the world, you just have no idea what's going to happen with, with any action that you take. So uh, I think, you know, the quality deciding on your inputs and the quality of those inputs does affect who you are but at the same time there's so many variables in every uh, every piece of who you are that like it's just mind-boggling the uh, what are the odds that we're here right now talking to each other you know what i mean it's like it's insane but uh, to to move on here um my next question for you is, is there any, is there any big uh, area or idea that you disagree with Naval on? I, I think you've been asked this before, but I'm interested to hear again. Yeah, I, I um, Pomp asked me this question and I hadn't thought hard about it before. Um, and I, th- I think my first answer was that I, I didn't know, but I was very curious how his philosophy applied to his, um, how strictly he applied to some of his like stoic mm-hmm. philosophies to his very close relationships, you know, his parents, his wife, his kids. Um, and I think the other, which is a thing I stand by um, that I'm just curious about, but I don't, I don't know how, um, I don't know enough to know that I disagree with it. Um, and it wouldn't matter if I did, because those are very personal decisions and very personal kind of things. And if they work for him, they work for him. And that's, that's wonderful. Um, and I'm, you know, perfectly entitled to choose my own way of life. Um, the other one is, is that I think um, his philosophy on, on operating startups is, is kind of radical. Um, so it is hard to agree with in its entirety. Um, but uh, my, immediately told myself to shut the hell up because he's built an incredibly successful like business or five and I haven't. So, um, you know, easy for me to say, I disagree with it when he's got a result and a track record and, and I don't, um, will you outline that just a little bit for our audience? Yeah, he's, um, it's a pretty, uh, kind of free flowing. He really prioritizes like shipping fast, um, Mm -hmm. and building like a very flexible, super independent team, um, and I think there are, there are definitely like trade-offs and I think he understands the trade-offs that he's making on that perfectly well. Like, um, he, he sets like a very light long-term vision and says like, okay, you're in here, sit out and like ship every single day. And, like nothing else matters, just like ship an improvement every day. And, and there, the trade-offs to that are like kind of lack of product focus. Maybe sometimes there are like loose ends all over the product and there are like, maybe not as super cohesive experience and that you kind of have all these like half-hearted explorations that people undertake, but then trim. And so the upside of that is like, you run a lot of experiments because you have a lot of different perspectives that are making their own individual decisions. Um, And the downsides are maybe that like, it's not as clear to users what, you know, the focus of the product is, and maybe there's some effort wasted in that, but maybe it's made up in speed. Um, and you know, every entrepreneur has their own kind of operating philosophy and he's, he's just like extreme enough that it's maybe easy to kind of pick that out as a thing. That's like, well, that's like far out there. Um, but again, it's, it has worked for him and it's worked for AngelList. So, um, my, my disagreement doesn't mean, doesn't mean much. 
Well, I think, you know, the idea of operating philosophy could be ran through that same analysis, you know, kind of did at the beginning about specific knowledge where you have to choose an operating philosophy that is a good match for your intuitive, mm-hmm. you know, uh, natural inclinations to work. If you're super, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're the visionary, you're going to have a very different uh, ideal working situation and ideal iteration cycle and iteration strategy than someone who is, you know, a habitual tinkerer and gets a ton of pleasure out of coming in to uh, their workshop and putting a 1% improvement out every single day versus, you know, someone like me, who's like a, can get super excited about any new idea quickly and then reach the advanced beginner stage and then immediately yeah. want to just learn about a completely new domain. Uh, and so Naval, you know, it seems like he's following his own advice there on, okay, well, that's the operational philosophy that works well for someone who has that first principles type, move fast, impatience, attitude versus someone with a different approach is going to uh, kind of take a different approach and there's not anything wrong or incorrect about it. And I think that's really one of the best uh, pieces of, of this, this book and this whole content platform and brand that Naval's created is at the end of his uh, how to get rich without getting lucky, the podcast he does with, with Nivy, the three hour compilation of it all. He talks about you know how he doesn't really feel like these are very attackable ideas because he only presents the absolute most distilled, absolute minimum viable principle, which I thought was a really cool concept, the minimum viable mm-hmm. principle. This is just the baseline, uh, not making any extrapolations, not taking any creative direction. This is just the absolute bare minimum. These are ways the world works. Apply this because it works. Like, trust me, like there's no arguments to be made against, against that. Uh, so one thing I want to ask you, uh, because obviously we can't this, it's, we're distilling, you distilled a million words into a, a couple hundred page book. We're distilling a couple hundred page book into a podcast, uh, which we'll put a title on and everything else. But the way Naval uh, describes the whole distillation of the main message of this whole idea, at least on the wealth creation side, is productize yourself. Uh, how does that manage to encapsulate the most important ideas? And how does that serve as a hook that can be expanded on to kind of realize the rest of his ideas? Yeah, this one kind of took me a while to feel confident on packing um, because it is such a strong distillation. I mean, all the way, you know, hundreds of pages down to two words. Um, I actually think it's more, it's easier to start with yourself. Um, And so yourself, it it kind of embodies the concepts of uh, specific knowledge. So knowing who you are, knowing what you're skilled at, knowing what you're obsessed with, leaning into those advantages, Um, being accountable. So not trying to abstract yourself too much from what you're doing, not just in a skill sense, but in a like risk and accepting the risk that you're taking sense. Um, so that is kind of yourself on the productized side. It is really about leverage and about scale and um, kind of applying those to make it so that you don't have like a one for one input to output ratio. So um yourself alone could be like a service business or a consulting or something like that. And productize really pushes you to do something that you can build once, sell twice, sell a hundred times, something that has um, kind of leverage built into it. So whether that's through a podcast, whether that's through a book, whether that's through software or media or anything, uh, or, or it's even through a trading algorithm, right? Like I think, you know, there, there are plenty of things that fall into this category. Um, so productize yourself is like, is that kind of two word summary of like, find some leverage, find some scale, um, find something that society doesn't yet know how to get, but wants from you. And then yourself is like, take accountability for your own actions, do something that is inherent within you. So that doesn't summarize like 
all of the ideas of the wealth creation, but it is certainly some of the really kind of key ones that you can unpack from, you know, just a two word mantra that you can use to kind of check in on, on what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And when I read that at first, I didn't really understand it either. Yeah. It's kind of becoming clear to me, even hearing you say that just now, but I think that now we're going to transition to kind of what we call a bonus round, um, a little bit more about you, a little bit less, uh, a little bit less thematic. But the first question that I have for you kind of piggies off something that I heard in, in Palm's podcast with you is um, you talk a lot about learning in public there. But one thing that I've been afraid of with this podcast and am and, and still afraid of moving to the future is, is being wrong in public um, as a result of learning in public. So uh, how have you dealt with being wrong in public? I've never been wrong in public. <laughs> uh, no, right, Kyle, was... no mistakes. <laughs> we tell the person, we basically find our editor and make sure that they know to remove any mistakes. We need an editor and a fact checker. Fact check it all. Yeah. Uh, I'm very glad you guys started laughing immediately. This was clearly a joke. I'm wrong in public often. Um, and, and usually I, f uh, I don't know, I find it helpful to like, um, I mean, you have a Twitter following over a certain size. Like if you tweet anything at all, people will try to correct you and they often succeed, right? Like I've learned a lot by people who clearly are more credentialed or experienced in a certain area coming up and being like, dude, you're super wrong. Um, and usually it is about something that I like am glad to be informed on. Like the reason that I talk about this stuff in public and, and work in public is because I want to learn more about it. And I've found that the more you, share about what you're interested in, the more people kind of show up to help you along. And so, um, you know, I, especially on things that I don't know a lot about, or I'm just starting off on, like, I don't get a lot of ego wrapped up in that. And so being wrong in public or being, it's, it, I think it's less about like right and wrong and more about like, I'm a learner of a thing, you know, and we are all learning something as we go, like we are never fully baked. And so, um, you know, nutrition is something that like, I'm interested in, I know more about than some people, but like, there are definitely a lot of experts that know a lot, lot, lot more about it than me. Um, but when I talk about it, people correct me or add nuance or add, you know, kind of additional information that pile on. And sometimes it contradicts and I'm glad to be corrected and know. And sometimes, um, you know, that's how I like fold that into myself and keep learning and growing. Um, you know, one of the things that you know, we have to kind of run those experiments in order to find out when we're wrong. And I think it's good for you to build up that, like that muscle. Like, mm -hmm. um, if you are too afraid to be wrong or incomplete or imperfect in public, then you're not going to get the benefits of building in public because you just can't get over that, that ability to share. And, you know, there are, there are pros and cons to it and just difficult to do. And, um, but if you have like, some humility about it. Like I, I know what I'm not good at and I know what I'm at least better than decent at. Um, and so I, I'm not, I'm not afraid to get corrected on things that I, I know that I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. and just kind of embracing that and getting, you know, never taking yourself too seriously so that, you know, people correct you, people make fun of you, like it's just whatever. Like, I know I suck at that. There's, there's no problem. Like I can be like, I can recognize that. Um, and so I, you know, especially on Twitter, like I try to, always be having fun with whatever I'm doing and never take it or myself too seriously. And, you know, even this book, like as much as I can, like on the one hand, it's kind of representing Naval. And so I try to like take that piece very seriously. 
Um, but I'm not afraid to like poke fun at myself and make jokes and make it fun and like take shit for it. Like that's, this part of the process it's, it's how I am in real life. It's how I am on the internet. Like there's, there's no reason to kind of posture and try to set up this unassailable, you know, correctness, um, in your social media, you know, it's just hanging out at scale. Yeah. I like that. I think, uh, a really funny example you brought up there about nutritional learning in public. I'm probably the case study number one for making bold, contradictory opinions about nutrition in public. Uh, you know, I had a blog about veganism for a couple of years. I put all these blogs, passion about veganism. And now it's like a few, uh, last podcast we recorded, uh, our guest asked us just like, what's an amazing customer service experience. And I just go butcher box. Like I love butcher box <laughs> taking a clean, complete 180 on my nutritional stances in public. Like the biggest fan of carnivore really is he probably his biggest fan. And, you know, I could end up going vegan again the next day, you know? So there's nothing wrong with changing your opinions on these things. If you approach it with a level of humility and kind of acknowledge, you know, I'm, we're all just figuring it out. Yeah. Especially in nutrition, surprisingly, like, I I don't know why that's a much more of a, like a religious question than a science question, but it seems to be. And um, uh, that's partly what makes it fascinating. I think. I mean, Naval gives us a good heuristic there. The, the older the problem, the older the solution, or the older the question, the older the answer. And nutrition is, you know, ever since we've been able to have abundance and choice in nutrition, which is reasonably far enough ago, if we had the choice of two animals to hunt or two plants to gather, uh, people probably started arguing about what was better and what was optimal. Yeah. But it seems like you have made your decision, and that's sandwiches. You love sandwiches <laughs> a lot. You, you got some really good photos of sandwiches on your on your website. So what's your favorite sandwich and what are the key components to making just a great sandwich? And where's this passion for sandwich come from? That's, that's where I'm most, the why as well. Tell us the why, I need the why. I, I think sandwiches are like pretty damn near universal. Like every city has a sandwich that they're super proud of. And every country has like something between bread that is like sandwich or sandwich adjacent that like you can get into. Um, it, it's just like, I don't know. It's, it's somewhere between like a universal, but incredibly unique to like whatever locality you're in. Um, so I, I think like, I mean, I spent quite a while in San Francisco um, and lived there for a bit. So like Molinari Deli, like the Italian, the old school, like Italian deli is like pretty close to unbeatable. Um, New Orleans has some amazing sandwiches like Koshan Butcher and Killer Po' Boys and stuff is, oh, is yeah. incredible. Um, you know, there's there's some amazing barbecue sandwiches here in Kansas City. Um, you know, the Z-Man at Joe's and you can go on and on. I think like, as long as you have like contrast in a sandwich, like you're, you're pretty good. So you want like, you know, fatty salami and acidic um, kind of crispy, like shredded lettuce and like juicy tomato. And like, it's all about, or like crispy fried chicken that is spicy and like creamy slaw that is crunchy at um, like Hattie B's in Nashville. You know, so whatever, as long as you're kind of like finding contrast and you got some like salt, fat, acid, heat, like mm. the, the kind of standard like flavor profile things like you're golden. And it's funny when you start, like you see this huge variety of sandwiches, but they also like the very, very best ones come back to like a few of those principles, right? Like um, salty, fatty acid, like even really, really simple stuff um, have like those three components that in contrast, uh, especially in a contrast and texture, like just is perfect. 
So what would your favorite international sandwich be? Is it like a banh mi or like a Italian, like a crepe? Is, I don't know if a I, sandwich I, is just <laughs> carbs wrapped around. I don't know. Definitions here. I love yeah. a bon. I love a bon me. Um, I get in many fights about my definition of a sandwich because I think like basically anything where like you're using a carb to eat the other stuff is a sandwich. Um, so like I think tacos are a sandwich. I think a hot dogs a sandwich. And you're gonna get that. hate mail. You're gonna get hate mail for that. I'm absolutely certain of it. But um, but I stand by it, and it's fun bullshit to debate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, to switch directions back from sandwiches to books and thinking. Uh, as much as because Kyle and I are going to a sandwich shop after this, mm. uh, that is that's on the calendar. Uh, but what does what does Alabama know about sandwiches? A lot. They actually, yeah. I'll take this one, Lewis. Yeah, it, I, I should not be answering you. this. They got some really good barbecue sandwiches down here. Like, okay, uh, I would say, oh man, I'm gonna forget the name of the place and you put me on the spot. But when Miss Myra's in in Vestavia, it's a little hole in the wall. They've got the best barbecue barbecue sandwich out there for real. And when you come to Alabama, I'll take you there. No worries. I got That's you. awesome. I love it. Thank you for not letting the vegan answer the sandwich question. Yeah. <laughs> hey, reforms, change. I don't know where I'm at right now. My new butcher box is coming in, my second delivery. I mean, I did the same thing, right? Back to the uh, the outsourcing. I'm the most ridiculous person in the world, and I'm afraid to spend $160 on editing, but I did spend $120 on a meat box. And there's it's a quality input. So, I mean... There's, there's some lessons to be learned here. Uh, but I, I wrote this question before the show and I had to add to it throughout the conversation to make sure, ensure we got an original answer. Uh, so I have a long list here. Besides Naval, Taleb, Munger, Dalio, and Buffett, who are some living thinkers we should be paying attention to? Living. Um, I, I think uh, Peter Kaufman is, is like very underrated and like he tries to stay under the radar. Um, but he is an incredible, uh, he, he is a, like a friend of Munger's and tries to distill like many of his lessons. And so he has really pushed some of the mental model stuff. Um, uh, Blas Moros is, is publishing um, a, a site called Latticework that is actually like covers a lot of Kaufman's ideas. Um, Shane Parrish at Farnham Street has used a lot of, of Kaufman's ideas. Um, and Shane is an incredible like thinker in his own right and distiller. Like I love Farnham Street and Farnham Street was totally, like I found it when I was, 22 and it's been like absolutely instrumental to like loading a lot of his mental models kind of in my head and it's an incredible community um i think uh i wish i had my like my bookshelf in here because i could just go down that um living thinkers it's hard you got to go through the like the lindy effect of living so like old enough to be like kind of proven and have a bunch of stuff out there um but not so like early and young in their career. I, I really love Elaine de Baton, actually. Um, I don't know if you guys have read any of his stuff. He's a British, um, he, I think you would call himself a philosopher and he started by writing books that were like kind of modernizations of, his first book was um, How Proust Can Change Your Life. Um, and I actually didn't really like that book at all, but some of his recent ones are um, more recent are status anxiety and he's written um the school of life he's written about the news he's written about um the pleasures and sorrows of work is another book by him and it's a really kind of um it's it, it, if no it's a kind of a similar ethos of like 
let's look for timeless answers to modern problems in, in philosophy. And so, um, you know, he looks at like the history of work and the history of, of status and the history of the news um, through a lens of philosophy. And, and the work he's done at the School of Life is, is really incredible because it takes through a lot of um, a lot of the like emotional wisdom that we are never taught in school or even particularly like taught through our families necessarily. Um, you know, each family kind of has their own set of like emotional knowledge and, and wisdom to pass on, but it's not probably no family has a complete set of that. Um, and he has really at the school of life done a lot to kind of compile that of like, here's how to make a study of relationships. Here's how to make a study of love. Here's how to make a study of friendship. Here's how to like um, kind of unpack some of those things that are timeless human problems. Um, but they're like a little affected by modernity um, or just like really difficult to kind of build your own assemblage of. And so, um, you know, it's, it's almost a curation of philosophy brought into modern time that he's done. He's got a few Ted talks. He's got a lot of books, uh, the website, the school of life is free and you can kind of go click around and read on that. Um, but he's someone I think really like as a living thinker who is using timeless ideas is, is really, really talented. Yeah. And I think, kind of on that note like a lot of these up and coming people you've been on their their podcast here very recently like pomp i think he'll be somebody like the way i look at it is something lewis described as like the newsletter gang um lewis you want to fill in some of those names i'm kind of missing a lot of them <laughs> uh i just think that the people so people just like the, names. the, the morning brew crew uh just the big uh -huh. productivity entrepreneurship marketing twitter that also has a a huge newsletter following i think they'll I, they'll be like the lost generation um of these 20s you know they had it was like hemingway and all them in paris and in, in the mm. last 20s and i think that i think that some of those people that you've been talking to will, will prove to um to live up to something like that in the future um yeah, yeah. there's an incredible i mean like jack butcher david perel mm -hmm. tiago forte trevor mckendrick like these guys are all incredibly talented. They're, they're brilliant people. I mean, Shane Parrish, like James Clear, Brent mm -hmm. Bishore, like they are all doing like remarkable, remarkable things. Like whether it's through a newsletter or through books or through the blog or through like courses. Um, yeah, I, I think like we have a lot to like as soon as our formal education stops, th these are a lot of places that we turn. So like, how do we keep improving? How do we keep learning? How do we keep growing? Um, and how do we find like more practical, like just in time solutions to the things that we're encountering, like in our personal and professional lives all the time. Uh, yeah. I, th I think that's like, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that I'm really excited to see the next 10 years and the next mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, kind of what goes, goes past that. I think all of those guys command like, a really great hold on Nepal's principles where, you know, they have mm -hmm. leverage in the form of humongous audiences, uh, the relevancy and the, the character traits that they've built for themselves, the reputation of consistency and being, you know, a thought leader on XYZ topic, they're going to have that intellectual gravity where the best opportunities are going to flow to them. And again, it's, they're going to start to enjoy mm -hmm. the winner take all prizes in, in their different games. And I think that's why, you know, they're poisoning themselves to be in maybe a smaller scale or maybe a different scale, like a PayPal mafia of the next 10 years. Uh, that was my thesis of that original tweet that Kyle was referencing and the Lewis's how to become a PayPal mafia using an email list, I guess. Tweet. Yeah. I think increasingly of what's happening is like companies are having to become like the lines between media and marketing are really blurring. 
um, mm-hmm. because it's, it, media is becoming so free and so quality that in order to command any attention whatsoever, you have to, you can't really just be a marketing engine anymore. You have to create media and in order to create media. Like you have to compete with media companies. And so what's happening is like media companies, people who are good at building audiences and good at capturing attention are now kind of like, you're starting with that and then building backwards into like, okay, how do I serve this audience? How do I solve their problems? How do I, you know, deliver solutions to them? And, and that is like, just completely backwards than how, you know, innovation has happened in the past. Um, but I think it's a really, really interesting thing. And you're going to start to see like people with audiences start to bet, make bigger and bigger bets sequentially. And they'll go from, you know, newsletters to courses, to SaaS tools, to companies mm-hmm. that are like, I, there's just more and more robust ways to solve problems that all of these people that I know have. And like, I'm just going to keep leveling up my investment in that and solving bigger and bigger problems um, involving, you know, more leverage, more accountability, more labor, more capital, more like uh, more products. And, and we're just going to kind of keep seeing that go. I mean, Kyle and I have fully bought into that. We started this podcast with the general kind of direction of, we don't necessarily know what we want to do. We know we want to be entrepreneurs. Uh, if we have an audience, any other problem we want to solve will be easier. And I think you give a good example there. Someone that I know helped you out with the book I saw in the acknowledgements that we're hopefully talking to in a couple of weeks is Taylor Pearson. Uh, And he, he, you know, just grew an email list about productivity and crypto and finance and really, really great articles that dissect Taleb. And he's used that to become like a hedge fund manager. You know what I mean? Like that's a very perfect example. Yeah. That's a very uncommon though. Like career trajectory like how many uh hedge fund managers became hedge fund managers because they established their credibility <laughs> as just a blogger thinker about finance and then all of a sudden i was like you know like let's actually give you money I mean, I, think that, that, I mean that describes pomp right with with morgan creek um uh, or, or close to it um i mean i think the o'shaughnessy's like had a fund already but it's certainly like grown tremendously as a result of of the stuff that patrick has done with invest like the best which is another amazing you know podcast kind of newsletter podcast. yeah it's it's really really good um so I, I think that's um i think we'll see more and more of those taylor pearson's an incredible example and a great guy yeah he helped me a ton with the book um you know he had, he had a bestseller a few years ago the end of jobs he's working on another one which is which is very exciting oh, he's um, working on it that's exciting i read the end of jobs twice and like in two days both times so <laughs> that's a, that's a high compliment Taylor. yeah 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 i also read your book in two days to be fair yeah that's good the turnaround I, I want, time was pretty quick <laughs> that's good i want to be able to like power through the end you know the highest compliment you can get is is people wishing it was longer um so that's that's what i was going for um, so next question here, uh, what meditation habits do you have and how have you maintained those habits? Um, my meditation habits are not excellent. Um, I would, I would probably describe them as just in time. Uh, <laughs> I, I do like almost nothing proactively. Um, but I have at least learned to recognize when I need to, and like learn to, to take that time. Um, I also learned that like sitting on a cushion with my legs crossed, like is harder for me to sustain as the habit. Um, and this is somewhat hedonistic, but I've learned that hot tub time is basically meditation for me. So like I go sit in the sauna and like, I get that experience of having meditated, um, of just being like, I can't do anything else. I'm just sitting here relaxing, thinking about, you know, how like good it feels to just kind of be weightless and like listen to water flow. And that, that is, um, as just close to like practice, you know, kind of normal meditation thing, but it, it solves the like 
how do you silence that voice in your head? How do you just like let things flow for me? Um, and it's just kind of a, a process of experiment of finding like, when do you, when do you observe mental peace? And for me, like, that's kind of where it happened. Um, and so now that I know that I know where to kind of fit that into my routine and, um, use that as like a touchstone to, to go back to. I like that. That's, I've kind of come to a similar conclusion recently where if I can just attach meditation to an existing habit, instead of meditate, I, I can just run with no entertainment instead of, you know, podcasts, audiobooks, yeah. whatever else. And like that becomes a form of meditation. Uh, but Eric, thank you so much for this conversation. We really enjoyed chatting with you. It was super exciting. I saw the book on Product Hunt. I saw it on Twitter and I said, I want to talk to Eric. I want to hear the man behind the book. Uh, if people want to learn more about yourself and learn more about the book, I know it's free. So make sure to bring that up. You do not have to pay for this book. Unlike many other books that you do have to pay for, you don't have to pay for this one if you want to read it. Uh, but Eric, where should we send people who liked this conversation and want to learn more about yourself or Naval? Yeah, the, the book and in, in its entirety and everything about it is on uh, navalmanac.com. And I'm on Twitter, probably first and foremost, um, just at Eric Jorgensen, my full name. Uh, I got a personal website at ejorgensen.com with like a little bit of random writing stuff here and there. Um, but I'm, I'm easy to find, email, DM, whatever. Happy to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This is great, guys. I like it. And that wraps up our conversation with Eric. It's obvious that through his intense study of Naval, a lot of the wisdom has distilled into him, uh, which is something that he talks about and something that I found really interesting. And, and, and that's that, you know, Naval was influenced by what came before him. And, and that's obvious through the recommended reading at the end of the book. And I, I thought this was a, a really interesting conversation and, and valuable for us in the context of this podcast. And I'm really excited for people to listen to it. What about you, Lewis? Yeah, I jot down a few notes here, things I found interesting and worth recalling from the conversation. I think the way he helped us characterize some of the decisions we're making as kind of using the same terminology and mental frameworks as investing. You know, if we can invest $300 today and the payoff in six months is XYZ, that's probably a good return on investment rather than looking at it as a, I'm accruing more expenses uh, for life. And I think that was really helpful. And I think that could be helpful for a lot of people experimenting with adding a certain project to their portfolio or adding a certain software tool to, you know, their set of tools is, you know, confining it to be a well-defined experiment and seeing if that is worth your time. And if it's a good decision, I also think the importance of taking time to reflect on, you know, your specific knowledge, the way that that is found is by, I think, a combination of journaling. Uh, so, you know, asking yourself every day, what things did I do today that came easy to me? asking the people around you, your mom, your closest friends, what are things I'm good at that most people aren't good at naturally? What feels like play to me that looks like work to others? And for me, that looks like writing. It looks like making this podcast. It looks like cold outreach. And those are only things I've started to discover because I've been thinking about it. You, a lot of people, you know, you ask them what they want to do with their life and they kind of laugh it off and say, I have no idea. And I don't really think that's all that great. I think it's not something you should kind of have that passive casual humorous, ironic attitude towards. Instead, you should probably tackle the question, face the dragon and be like, what am I good at? And take some time every day, every couple of days to reflect on what went well and what didn't go well and what you enjoyed and what you didn't like. And from that, you'll start to learn patterns about yourself. And I think that's the best way to get specific knowledge. Uh, third thing here is, yeah, build on those who came before you, right? Eric, that's kind of what you were just talking about, Kyle, how Naval built on, uh, let's look at, where's genius on my bookshelf? Uh, he built on Richard Feynman so much. He built on stoicism. He built on Buddhism. There's absolutely nothing wrong and there's no pressure to be quote unquote original. We're all building on the ideas that came before us. We're all just building new knowledge on top of the knowledge that already exists. 
Uh, on a related note, number four, distillation and curation is a form of value production, both intrinsically and extrinsically. So like you're saying, right, uh, Eric, intrinsically from writing on his blog, that's how we learned about business, right? He didn't learn about business by reading business books. He learned about it by, I'm going to put out this blog about business. And in that process, I'm forcing myself to learn about it by writing. And then this book, uh, obviously the extrinsic value, the value to the world is, you know, there are a million readers of that blog. There are hundreds of readers of this book, probably thousands at this point, people that are really getting value from it. So he learned a lot by doing it and he produced value for other people just by making someone else's ideas more digestible. And the last thing here for me is repetition is the mother of all learning. I got that from listening to a Russell Brunson podcast. I had listened to in between recording this podcast conversation initially and recording this follow-up now. Uh, but the idea for me, I, in preparation for this podcast, re-listened to the entire How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky podcast from Naval. I re-listened to some of his interviews like on Farnham Street. I read the entire book, which contained probably all ideas I've seen all before because I've listened to all of the resources that the book was built from. And it was most valuable because through the process of repetition, I'm ingraining the ideas better. I'm, you know, the things that the first time I saw it, those now make sense to me already. And so those are reinforcing. And then I actually have the mental space to start absorbing some of the new ideas. So there's nothing wrong with rereading books, re-listening to podcasts. If you enjoy a piece of content and want to ingrain the ideas, the best way to do that is probably through repetition. That was a long-winded uh, explanation of what I learned in this conversation, but it's an experiment. I liked it. Uh, so signing us off real quick, call to action for you listeners. Check out the book. It's free. It's totally free. Free on Kindle, free on PDF, free on EPUB. If you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. It means that if you have an electronic device, you can view it for free and read it for free. You should try it. You don't have to read the whole book, skim through it, see if you like it, or just follow Naval on Twitter. He liked some of my tweets I posted after this podcast came out. That's pretty sick. Anyway, if you liked what you heard today and you want to stay up to date with the podcast with The Lewis and Kyle Show, three ways you can do that. You can subscribe within your podcast player or on YouTube. Uh, now we have an email list. That's number two. You can get updates straight to your inbox. Number three, we have social media accounts on all major platforms. You can get updates right in your feed. Last, if you want to help us out, three ways for you to do that as well. You can leave a rating and or review on iTunes. You can do whatever word of mouth, good old fashioned. Hey, I'm at dinner. I like this podcast. I'm going to tell my friends about it. Number three, you listen to this episode. That's a link. It's the internet. It's amazing. Just post the link on social media. Say, I like this podcast. Y'all should check it out. That's how you can help us out. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you made it this far, we really appreciate it. Have a great week. We'll see you in a week with the next episode. See ya.